Okay. So maybe you could just start by just telling us what you guys have been doing for the last 20 years. Um, just give us the basic background and get us up to speed. Yeah. Um, so in 2008 is when I started this whole plant-based journey. I uh, lost my dad to cancer. And exactly 10 weeks after he passed away, I was diagnosed. So that was really the one-two punch I needed to get my nutrition on track. Um, and for a couple of years, I, I figured, tried to figure out, you know, what causes cancer? How do I not get it again? This is a very scary thing. So then um, in 2011, I started a company called STL Veg Girl, St. Louis Veg Girl, where I was doing classes and grocery stores and schools and doctor's offices and, you know, all the all, libraries, all the places. And um, got away from that a little bit, started a, um, a food delivery company, um, worked out of a, out a, out of a um, commercial kitchen. Um, so it did a lot of things during, during the years, trying to figure out this whole plant-based business. And uh, I was also working in, um, I was working at uh, an anesthesiology practice also. So that was like my day job. So I was doing this STL veg girl kind of thing on the side. And in 2014, I left my corporate job because STL veg girl was doing much better. Um, and people here in St. Louis, Missouri were like, oh, what is this plant-based diet? I kind of get it now. So I was getting a little more business. Then um, in 2017, I had my food for life certification. I went through Cornell University for the uh, plant-based nutrition certificate. Um, I went through well coaches for the, um, the health coaching. And I was doing a lot of classes, a lot of cooking classes. And I was starting to see some people who had reversed their type two diabetes, reversed their heart disease, their PSA levels went down. They were really starting to heal themselves just by putting more vegetables or plants on the end of their forks. And, but then I would see a few people who would just slide back and they would start adding in the foods that got them in trouble in the beginning. And then of course they were getting sick again, right? right? They were back on the meds. They were spending all the money on the meds. They were just not at a good place. So I was thinking about this one night and I thought, I wonder why somebody specifically who does take control of their health, change their health outcomes. Why would they then go back into eating those foods? So I put on my my uh, health coach hat. And I thought, you know, I think that it's support, right. you know, I think that, you know, unless you have support around you, you're going to go back into those bad habits. So, and, and when you, when you change anything in your lifestyle, maybe you want to stop drinking so much or at all, maybe you want to quit smoking, maybe, you know, maybe you want to exercise more there. It's easy to find support for those kinds of things, right. but when you want to change the way you eat, oh my gosh, you know, it's a solo mission, hundred percent of the way. And you have to be an expert, right? So, um, I, I was seeing a lot of people I, that I personally saw a lot of people go back into their old habits of eating because they did not have the support. So I thought, you know, we got to create it, right? right? So I um I contacted some people who I know in this this plant-based arena that are, you know, pretty well known and I have the sincere pleasure of knowing. I called them separately and I said, "Listen, I'm thinking about opening a brick and mortar place, brick and mortar support culinary school something for just plant-based living or plant-based eating." I said, "Do you know of anybody in I don't know, like um, Berkeley, California, or Brooklyn, New York? You know, places that are you know really progressive. Is there anybody who has just a solely a plant-based educational facility?" And they both said, "No, because they're doing what you're doing, Karen, which is what we were all doing at the time, and we were service-based. We were going places to spread the word about plants." 
And I thought, well, that's just silly because if somebody's really sick or they need to find support, we cannot be moving targets. We've got to have a place. So for that was 2017. So in 2000, yeah, 2019. So I saved everything I had for two years. And 2019, the anniversary of my dad's passing, uh, August 13th, we opened up the nation's first plant-based nutrition and culinary education center, the Center for Plant-Based Living, which is where we are coming from, to you from right now. Right. And, you know, Karen and I met, so so my journey, and it's interesting to me how many um, how many people I know, professionals or physicians who, who came to, to lifestyle medicine, plant-based nutrition through their own personal health issues, including myself, right? So, you know, I trained here in, in, in St. Louis at Washington University, and you know, I thought I was a pretty smart guy. But, you know, I just kind of would, my perception of what a healthy eating was, was regurgitating the, the food pyramid, right? Low fat dairy, lean meat, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and, you know, don't eat too much ice cream. And, and found out, unfortunately, um, in 2010, 2011, that you can't outrun a mediocre diet because after a knee injury, um, I had to wait a few months to get surgery. I was really busy and I started to gain weight and then I didn't do the rehab after surgery and I gained more weight. And next thing I know, I was a patient. I actually went into atrial fibrillation uh, and it turns out I had undiagnosed sleep apnea that came on because of the weight gain. And I finally went and saw my doctor and you know my cholesterol's through the roof. I got borderline diabetes. I got borderline blood pressure. And, you know, I'm seeing friends of mine that I trained with, you know, world-class docs here in St. Louis. No one ever had a conversation about lifestyle. It was CPAP machine and antiarrhythmics and statins. And, you know, I knew where I was headed because I was, I was in my early fifties at the time. And, you know, I was on the trajectory that almost every single one of my patients was on. And one day I was laying on the couch and I stumbled across Forks Over Knives, the documentary and thought, wow, food is medicine. Who knew? So I uh, made a commitment that summer to, to go on to transition to plant-based diet and rehab my knee. And probably four or five months later, I had lost 40, 50 pounds. My cholesterol dropped 100 points. My atrial fibrillation went away. The sleep apnea went away. I'd had lifelong allergies and asthma. That all went away. I could exercise again. And so, you know, obviously you realize pretty quickly if, if what's good for me is also good for my patients. So I really started to transition my, my practice to... Um, uh, more of a you know plant-based uh, lifestyle medicine focusing on plant-based diets and karen and i actually met um at the very first plant-based nutrition conference in, in naples florida and and it turns out we were both teaching plant-based cooking classes at the same cooking school and didn't know it well, you know different nights and so we started to collaborate uh, doing classes and when karen opened um um, uh, the Center for Plant-Based Living, she asked me to be her medical director. I actually relocated. I moved um, um, in the end of 2015 to Washington, D.C., where I now live, and I'm to serve as the medical director for the Barnard Medical Center, which is, uh, 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 I think Neil spoke, uh, Dr. Barnard spoke uh, uh, the first day of your conference, and, uh, um, um, and it's a lifestyle medicine practice with a focus on, on um on plant-based nutrition primarily. And so, you know, it's, it's just, it's, you know, and once you have this knowledge as a physician and once, you know, you have it as a chef, you, we can't unhave it, right? And we both feel it's so important to stand on the top of every mountain and share, you know, what we've, what we've learned so that we can help other people, you know, attain, you know, regain, attain and sustain um, their health. Great, thank you. So I guess the question is, I've been interested in plant-based nutrition for a long time. <clears throat> We've had the real truth about health. This is our 10th conference. Um, 
And we've had a lot of great speakers. And I think it's really great. I'm very excited. I like all the wonderful speakers. They're really smart. They have great resumes. They're, you know, went to great colleges. And I'm totally sold that this is a great way to do to go. But we're trying to be genuine here and we're trying to be the real truth, not propaganda. So when I look on the internet for speakers for our conference, I find that along with all these amazing plant-based people, there's a bunch of people screaming their heads off about the keto diet, the paleo diet, eating right. animal products. And even though I feel like I've learned a lot, I'm thinking maybe I'm not an expert. So in the real world, with your real patients, with the real people you deal with, what is actually happening? Is everyone who adopts a whole food plant-based diet thriving? Are people still, I mean, compared to people who are doing the keto diet? Like what, what's really happening in terms of obesity, cancer, heart disease, and not just after three weeks, what's happening 20 years later? Like, do we know anything about what really is happening in the real world with people who eat on a whole food plant-based diet in terms of their health outcomes compared to not only the standard American diet, which we know isn't so good, but like a keto diet where they're also giving up processed food and white flour and sugar, but they're using a lot of animal products. Any, any thoughts on that? Well, I'd like to start with just saying, you know, I know that especially in this world of everything, you know, you can get all the information right here, right now. And that's what we all want. And I will tell you that a plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet, no to low oils, all those things, it is the most progressive and yet the most in the most conservative approach to right. to getting to regaining very very good health now here's the thing so jim and i are actually on staff at at a health immersion and um we they do we do these a couple couple times a year and the people who come to this health immersion are very sick it, it is health the health insurance does pay for it it's actually for whole foods employees um but it is incredible to me that so many people who come to this health immersion are so so sick. They've been they've been taking type two type two diabetes medications for twenty years or plus. They have just all the chronic illnesses you could you could ever imagine just piled into these people for years and years. About the the immersion is six days long, and I'm not kidding you. Within seventy probably seventy two yeah. hours, maybe even less than that, we start to see people pass out and it's because they are then over medicated right. okay so this this health immersion that we do there's no smoothies there's no there's no like crazy exercise a, a lot of exercise there's no supplements there's nothing they the food is all whole buffet food. style and it's all whole food plant-based now it is doctor driven so there are dr scott stoll's there jim's there and some other physicians and but People become over-medicated because their bodies start to heal so fast. Right. It is amazing. If we give our bodies just a little bit of help, we want to be help, we want to be healthy people. Right. I mean, we all know of, of functioning alcoholics and people who are, you know, uh, on drugs and they're, you know, functioning parts of this of the society. But if you give yourself just a little bit of help, it's amazing how fast your body will take over, that health will take over. And Jim can even, I mean, Jim's gonna have it ton more to say, but he can really talk to what's happening down right. the road years later. So, so Steve, I think that, you know, a couple of issues you bring up that are important to understand. So first of all, when we look at evidence, because I practice evidence-based medicine, we, 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 you know, 
everything we do in the in in at the Barnard Medical Center, everything we do in our classes here, the, the information we provide is evidence-based. And as you well know, uh, nutrition research is notoriously difficult to do. Um, you can't do the the kind of the gold standard double-blind controlled study because you can't take small children and put half of them on a plant-based diet for their whole life and the other half, you know, standard Western diet and see what happens. So we, we know in many ways we have to rely on, on, um, on uh, population studies and things like that. And I mean, the other problem is, 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 you know, where does, when, when you, you know, when we look at studies, for example, with type two diabetes, um, that shows that metformin, you know, makes your diabetes better. Who's funding that, right? What's the pharmaceutical companies? There's no big blueberry that's out there funding research to really take a hard look and generate hard science oftentimes around the benefits of plant-based diets. Now, that doesn't mean it's not out there. PCRM actually is, is one of the, been, Neil's been one of the leaders in, in research. The PCRM has a, a research department. They've done a lot of really foundational work looking at, at type 2 diabetes, for example. But there are lots and lots and lots of studies looking at, for example, Dean Ornish's work around prostate cancer that, you know, when you go on a plant-based diet, your, your PSA lows go down in a profound, what's called epigenetic effect. The, the, um, um, they were able to show that over 500 cancer, prostate cancer promoting genes turned off. You look at Ornish's work, I think the speaker before this came up, uh, Ornish's work on, on heart disease reversal. Um, um, some of Neil's work comparing um, uh, plant-based diet to the standard ADA diet for diabetics, you know, on and on and on. So um, there's a lot of emerging evidence around autoimmune diseases. So th there is a growing body of evidence. And I, and, I, and I think the problem is though, and, and the challenge, and one of the things that Karen and I, are, and Karen does a great job with, and we're both trying to, 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 to accomplish is, I think what makes this so hard for everybody, you know, eating is a learned behavior. And once we learn it, we just stop thinking about it. And, and um, um, it's kind of like driving. Driving is another example of a learned behavior. And when we, once we learn how to drive, our brains stop thinking about it. And there's an evolutionary reason for that. And that's because if we had to think about everything we did, we wouldn't have seen the ripe berries and we wouldn't have seen the leopards and we wouldn't have lasted very long. So, so our subconscious brain automat automates tasks pretty quickly eating being one of those, but driving is another. So, you know, you get in your car, you don't think about putting on your blinker, your brake. You move to London tomorrow, you got to learn how to drive on the other side of the street, right? And it's going to take three to six months of really focusing on the, that, the, the new behaviors you have to have. What side of the road am I on? How do I go through the roundabout? And then one day you get in the car and that's how you drive. And you wouldn't drive on the wrong side of the road in moderation, now would you? No, right? Because you'd only have a moderate number of head-on collisions and run over a moderate number of pedestrians. So the problem is with diet, that head-on collision, that heart attack, that stroke, you know, breast cancer, colon cancer, that head-on collision might be 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And so it's very hard sometimes for people to stay focused long enough to develop new habits around healthy eating and healthy lifestyle so that they, to avoid that, that head-on collision. And, and so again, what, what we're, what Karen's trying to do at the Center for Plant-Based Living, what we do at, at, at the Barnard Medical Center is really work a lot on behavior change. I mean, we don't, I mean, we don't need any more research on what's the best diet to lose weight, prevent diabetes, reverse heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. That, that, that there is a solid, solid body of evidence out there that we know that at least a plant-forward diet and most you know whole food plant based diets the optimal diet. What we need to focus on is behavior change, and I and I think you know that that's the biggest challenge. I think. 
But you, you did talk about keto, and I think that that's a valid point. If you wouldn't mind addressing that, because yeah. there are so many people who who do have good results with keto, right. but but what else is happening? Right. So so again, I think you know we kind of live in this this era of immediate gratification, and and the other thing is we practice oftentimes what I call health reductionism. I want we treat people's weight different than we treat their blood pressure, different than we treat their heart disease, different than we treat their cancer risk, different than we treat their you know their blood sugars, their diabetes. And so, you know, for example, if you're trying to lower your blood sugar um, and you go on a keto diet, yes, your blood sugars get better um, and you'll lose weight. But to achieve that in the short run, those are short run, short term, you know, um, outcomes to achieve that, though, the high fat, the high, high protein diets. And there's again, study after study after study has shown that when people go on a keto diet, they have these short-term benefits, their sugars improve, they lose weight, but their cancer risk goes through the roof. I've seen people's cholesterol go from, you know, 200 to 300 total cholesterol on a keto diet because there's so much fat, the only way, you know, to get ketotic. And, um, you know, in the way when patients come in about the, the, the sugar, the, 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 the diabetes, you know, I, I think most doctors don't really understand what diabetes is uh, really and type two diabetes and the analogy I use is a kitchen sink model, right? So imagine you came into your kitchen this morning and the drain was clogged and you left the water on and there's water overflowing onto the floor, right? So how do you fix that? You get out a mop, maybe two mops, maybe three mops, you get the water up. Well, guess what? When you come back later today or tomorrow, you get to get the mops back out because you haven't fixed the problem because the problem is not the water on the floor. The problem is the clogged drain and, 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 the, and you left the water on. Well, that's exactly how most doctors are trained to treat types of diabetes, right? We got our metformin mop and then our Genuvia mop, then our insulin mop. We mop the sugar up, we put them away, but then we got to get them back out. So what's clogging the drain in type 2 diabetes? It's actually fat deposited in the muscle and liver cells. The processed sugar, processed grains, you know, edibles, that alcohol, things like that, that drives the need for insulin. That's the water. So what? And so that's why, by the way, a high fiber, low fat plant-based diet has been shown to reverse type 2 diabetes. A keto diet, you really think about it, what a keto diet does, it, it only takes care of half of that problem. It turns off the water. But in fact, there's research that suggests that insulin resistance will actually get worse. So when you come off a keto diet, your insulin resistance is worse than when you started because you, because you've just clogged the drain more because of all the fat intake. So assuming that someone says, okay, I'm going to eat a whole food plant-based diet. I'm totally committed to it. Now I've heard a lot of plant-based doctors say low fat. They've been very clear no oil, or I think they've said no oil, and I think they've said low fat. Um, however, I've heard Dr. Furman said that he's worked with long-term vegans, and some of them have ended up with dementia, and I think that he's saying that you should have either EPA, DHA, or he's saying to have some fats. I might be saying this wrong, but I guess the concern is that if you don't eat fat, are we going to end up with the problem with dementia of some type? Right. So, you know, the way I frame this intellectually and again, evidence-based is, you know, is really to step back and ask the simple question as human beings, what did we evolve to eat? What, what's the optimum diet for human health? And arguably it's the same diet we've been, that we, our ancestors followed for tens of thousands of years. Now, you mentioned paleo earlier. There's no such thing as a paleo diet, right? It was highly variable depending on season of the year, you know, what time, you know, geography, where you live. But there were certainly ancestral dietary patterns. And our ancestors, despite what many people perceive in temperate climates, I'm not talking about the Inuits in the subarctic, they were not hunter-gatherers, they were gatherer-hunters, right? It was much easier to gather food off the ground than to hunt down um, animals. But what do we gather? 
Well, it was primarily unrefined plants, roots and stems and leaves and seeds and fruits and nuts and vegetables and berries, legumes. There was not a canola oil bush or an olive oil bush. There wasn't a white flower tree. There wasn't a, 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 a you know, a, a Dr. Pepper nut. So, so just like, you know, in your car, you wouldn't put diesel gas in your car in moderation um, if expected to run right. You know, all of these highly processed sugars and highly processed oils and artificial sweeteners are all, A, they weren't in our ancestral diet and they're like, it's like putting diesel gas in your car. We did not uh, have access to dairy products other than our mother's milk. Um, there's several lines of evidence around that. We had to domesticate other mammals to even get access to their milk. That didn't occur till seven, 8,000 years ago. Seems like a long time, but a blink of an eye if you look at the you know millions of years or so that human species has been on the planet. Now we did eat meat, but it wasn't very much. Uh, probably 20, 25% of our calories. They, those animals were wild animals, which were very low fat, very lean. Um, there wasn't much fat in the wild animals that our ancestors ate. But I think you could also argue that our ancestors had a survival advantage to have in concentrated animal fat and protein to get big and strong, get away from a leopard and find a mate before they died with some infectious disease when they were 30. So they never had to worry about if I overconsume animal foods or these processed foods, you know, am I going to get diabetes or have a heart attack or whatever, because they were already dead, right? Again, from infectious disease, we've unmasked these chronic conditions. And then you step back and you think about the implications of how we raise food today on the environment, you know, I think you can make a very strong argument that a whole food plant-based diet is the optimum diet for human health, planetary health, et cetera. So if you look at the macronutrient ratios of a whole food plant-based diet, 75% unrefined carbs, 15% uh, protein, and about 10% fat. That, that's, that's, and that, that matches the best we know to what our best estimates of what an ancestral diet was. So that equals about 30, 35 grams of fat a day. Um, and so, you know, again, um, now you do need omega-3, you do need some omega-3 uh, fatty acids, um, but you can get those, if you're eating a well-balanced whole food plant-based diet, you know, things like what, to, like- Seaweed. See, well, no, no, uh, oh, the wall, the wall walnuts and hemp seed and flax seed and all that. And I, I do have some patients, especially if they're having a hard time cutting out oil, I will, I will put them on an algae-based omega-3. But, but what's interesting, if you really look at the dementia literature, the things that prevent dementia are things like blueberries and antioxidants and, you know, not smoking and exercise and, and, and such. So, so I think there's a lot more evidence to suggest that a whole food plant-based diet is the best way to prevent dementia than as a cause. So if, I'm sorry, you want to say something, Karen? I was just going to say that, you know, it's not a, it's just because we're not using refined oils uh, doesn't mean it's a fat-free diet. We absolutely, to your point, I mean, it, right. we absolutely need fat. We just don't need this copious amounts of fat that, that uh, we right. hear from, from marketers really. Right. Right. And so you, you mentioned oil, you know, one, a, a, a tablespoon of oil has like 10, 12, 14 grams of fat in it. So that's half of the fat we need for the, for the day. And, you know, you're not just putting the table, you know, you're coating that pan and, 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 and you're, you know, you're, it's in the salad dressing, it's in all this processed food we eat. So uh, the problem is most of, most people get way too much fat, which is inflammatory and heart disease, cholesterol on and on. So. So if someone follows a whole food plant-based diet with um, min no, no, no oil, uh, minimal salt, no sugar, do they achieve their optimal weight in blood sugar or if is it not enough? Like, is that it? Like in what percent of the time should we expect to have a blood sugar under a hundred and, and a good weight on a whole food, low fat plant-based diet? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I and I'm not, you know, I'm not sugar free. I mean, we, I use a little bit of maple syrup and date date paste. I mean, you right. know, so there's 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 varying things, but um, I don't know how. Well, so so it's interesting. So we we you know we do talk a lot about diet, but there's really three, there's really four kind of legs to the stool here, right? Um, we have to 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 be truly well, right? To achieve the goals you talked about, normalize your blood sugar, lose weight, reverse your heart disease, get rid of the diabetes. We have to achieve wellness, if you will, in three separate but highly connected domains. And then we need to limit our exposures to environmental toxins. And that's primarily tobacco and alcohol, although I think there is increasing concern about pesticides and herbicides and heavy metals and hormones and antibiotics in our food. But the principal domains are physical wellness. And we achieve that through movement. You know, we need 30 minutes to an hour most days, a couple of days a week, we need to replicate picking stuff up, moving out of the way. We need to be emotionally well. And that's about stress, stress management and sleep. And then we need to be nutritionally well, which means we got to eat what we're supposed to eat and stop eating what we're not supposed to eat. Um, the other thing I think we overlook is how connected they are. You know, you can't truly be emotionally well without regular physical activity. And in fact, the more stress you have, the more activity you need. And the reason is your brain can't tell the difference between worrying about COVID and seeing lepers. So we get the same stress response. So what happens when we when we create that mismatch? Well, now all of a sudden the adrenaline, you know, makes our blood pressure go up and we get anxious so we can't sleep because our mind's racing around worrying about stuff so we don't recover from the stress, which just makes it worse. The cortisol, you know, drives our appetite, preferentially towards we eat his belly fat because it's trying to help you refill that gas tank before the next leopard. So again, um, um, when we create a mismatch between stress and movement, uh, it can lead to stress eating and weight gain, you know, hard to lose weight, fundamental connection, diet and physical activity. You know, we, we, you know, you don't park your car in the garage for you and not drive it and, and still fill it full of gas five times a day, even if you're putting the right kind of gas in, right? You don't empty your gas tank and put 30 gallons in a 15 gallon tank and, and, and you don't put diesel gas in your car in moderation. So yes, diet does drive probably 75 to 80% of our overall health. But I think we're, what we, what we don't pay near enough and Karen can speak to this too, near enough attention to is our emotional health. Because if you're stressed out and you're, you know, you're, 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 you're anxious, you're not sleeping well, you're going to be much, much less likely to, to cook that healthy meal uh, to, to go out and, and exercise. Yeah, you just won't be motivated. Right, exactly. Right. And so, I mean, I'm sure you see that a lot with, with, you know, the stress eating and all that. All it's, it's the so, time. It's so, yeah. It's and I mean, common. I do it. Everybody does right. it. You know? Right. And what about um, salt? I've always thought that salt was something to avoid, but there's a, someone wrote a book called the salt fix. And I know someone who tells me, no, no, you need water of salt. It holds the water. I, I don't What What is your thought about salt? Well, so just take this from a culinary standpoint, um, I, I salt my food while I am cooking. It has a very real scientific actually place in, in the kitchen. It really does help the flavors or the food bloom, if you will, uh, really develops the flavors. It's not, you're not tasting salt, you're tasting the real food. Um, so I will salt a little bit during the cooking process. I do not do it at the end. Right. And I mean, we're talking, you know, if I'm making a big pot of soup or chili or what, gosh, whatever I'm making, I usually batch cook. Um, I'm putting a little pinch in there and it's, you know, you're getting 12 servings out of right. this or whatever. So, and right. I mean, literally like a little pinch because a lot, a little bit goes a long way. I do not use it at the end because I just spent all this time and money on this food for myself and my family or, you know, for a class here, I don't want you just to taste salt. I right. want you to taste the real flavors. So that's why I don't end with salt. I just cook with it. Right. And we need about, so, so you are right. I mean, we do need salt and um, probably around 1500 milligrams a day of sodium is, is about right uh, for, for most people. 
The problem is, you know, average American gets three to 4,000 milligrams a day, and it's mainly from packaged food, um, and, you know, packaged food and restaurant food. So we'd get a tremendous, we, we, you know, we take in way too much salt. And, and as you probably know, um, salt is actually inflammatory, excess salt. So excess salt can create inflammation. It can raise our blood pressure. Um, what, in a, you know, and as far as salt and blood pressure, one, one thing people may not realize that's just as important for blood pressure uh, as sodium, it's actually uh, potassium. So it's, it's, it's really, what you really are shooting for is a, is a ratio of three to one potassium to sodium. So you're looking for about 4,500 milligrams of potassium to about 1,500 milligrams of, 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 um, of sodium. And um, if you can maintain that ratio, then, then th that mitigates some of the effect of, of the excess salt. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, when we talk about you Where know, do you find potassium? Yeah, yeah, potassium. Most people's the bananas, right? Yeah. So bananas have about four hundred milligrams uh, per banana. So you're, you know, you'd have to eat ten, twelve bananas a day to get all that potassium. Beet greens, yep, beets and beet greens, thirteen hundred yeah. milligrams a cup. You know, potatoes, thousand milligrams a cup. White sweet potatoes, thousand milligrams a cup. Spinach. So again, it's these green leafy vegetables and 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 and, and such are the best sources of potassium. There's a woman named Sally Norton who just wrote a book that just came out called Toxic Superfoods, How Oxalate Overloads Making You Sick and How to Get Better. She says that beans and quinoa and whole grains are gut irritating foods. Um, and she, um, the people who support the book are people that seem to promote paleo, keto diets. Um, so the question is, um, you know, are there any health risks? I mean, I don't know. She wrote this book. Stephen Gundry wrote that book about lectins. Are you finding in the real world in your research that there are any health risks from eating plant-based foods such as beans, whole grains, quinoas, and quinoa and green vegetables? Could it be bad for our kidneys? Is she correct? Well, you know, what should we think of this? Well, I, I will. I will give her this. Yeah, there's a huge health risk if you're going to eat if you're going to eat uncooked beans and uncooked right. quinoa right. because you don't. You're not going to worry about a. a a tummy ache, you're going to have to go find a dentist. Yeah, right. You know, right. like you, <laughs> that's where the oxalates sit. They sit in the uncooked beans and the uncooked right. grains um, and, and the uncooked greens too. Right. So right. here's the thing when you cook the beans and you cook the grains, you are cooking off those those harmful oxalates. And right. the, any, any of the oxalates that are left in there are actually helpful for your gut. Right. So, um, <clears throat> so same with the lecithins, by so, the way. So the, the, you know, the lecithins, yes. the fight, the phytates, which is what Gundry talks about, you know, yeah. So they, so they, they when you cook them, right. And so, you know, if, if you back up and you look at the blue zones, right. So people don't know what the blue zones are. So Dan Butner went around and they, they found, they found, um, um, they found, uh, societies, uh, cultures, societies that, that had exceptional longevity. So it was like Okinawa. Centarians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okinawa, uh, Ikara in Greece, uh, Sardinia in Italy, the, Loma, the Nokoya Peninsula in, in Costa Rica, and then Loma Linda, California. And interestingly enough, I'll come back to why Loma Linda is on the, on the list. But if you do a Venn diagram of what they have in common, and these, again, these are some of the longest lived, healthiest people on the planet. What's their main source of protein? Well, it's legumes, right? So if legumes were somehow anti-nutrient and, and did bad things for you, I don't think the longest lived people in the world would be using that as their primary source of protein. Now, um, and the reason, by the way, people, you know, you can kind of get the other places. Why in the world would Loma Linda, California be on that list? What turns out, Loma Linda, California has one of the largest per per capita uh, population of Seventh-day Adventists. And Seventh-day Adventists, as part of their religious practice, follow a plant-based diet, right? 
Um, now, that all being said, um, there are a few, there are some people that need to be careful about oxalates. And those are people that form kidney stones. Uh, oxalate kidney stones are, are the most common kind of, of kidney stones. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you're eating a lot, and I have seen patients who were putting a pound of raw spinach yeah, in, a smooth, yeah. in a smoothie every morning and got kidney stones from it. Um, but um, as Karen said, when you cook, when you cook the spinach, right? Steam it Steam or boil it. it. it right. Yeah. Th that reduces the oxalate between 50 and 80%, right? So, so it's just not something you have to worry about and, and you know, staying hydrated and all that. So there, there is a very specific population of people that have to be a little bit careful with oxalates, but, um, um, but for, for the most of the population, it's just not something to worry about. Are, are raw greens like kale and broccoli a risk to eating if you eat them raw? Spinach, kale, broccoli, and dandelion? They're all going to be a different amount of ox. Are we still on oxalates? Is that yes, yeah. 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 Um, so they're all going to have different varying amounts of oxalates. So that's why I always tell people um, to to rotate your greens. Right. You know, every time you go to the grocery store, buy a different green. Right. So and mix it up too, right? It, so well, so some in a salad and then cook some. Oh, right, right. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. You know, th this question about cooked versus raw in general comes up all the time, mm -hmm. and and um, um, it's interesting because there's a number of of, of, of vegetables. Uh, tomatoes, for example, and carrots and mushrooms and asparagus and cabbage, where actually when you cook them, the nutritional value goes up, actually. Uh, for example, tomatoes have lycopene, um, which is, has been shown to, um, has been shown to uh, reduce uh, uh, the risk for prostate cancer and breast cancer and such as that. If you cook tomatoes for two minutes, the, the, oxal the lycopene content goes up 50%. Yeah. You cook it for 30 minutes, it goes up 164%. But then the vitamin C. Right, right. Goes so, down. so you do lose a little bit on the other side of that. You know, when we cook vegetables, it, especially some of the water soluble vegetables, you will decrease like vitamin C. So again, the idea is, is to have cook a tomato sauce, but also have a salad that has some raw tomatoes on it. So it's, it's just about, again, mixing it up and, right. and, and, and uh, eat what you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. What about cholesterol? What should my, what do we ideally want our cholesterol to be? Um, and are we say if it's below 150, does that mean we won't get a heart attack? Do some people still get them? Will we eat a whole food plant-based diet? What's the latest information on how protected we are from heart disease and stroke if we're eating a whole food plant-based diet? Well, first of all, you, you know, you can't out, you can't, you can't, you can't un you can't immediately at least unwind whatever lifestyle you had before. So, so, you know, I went plant-based when I was in my early fifties um, and I, I did not have a healthy diet beforehand. You know, I, I ate a lot of smoked meat and barbecue and, you know, on and on. Um, and so do I have a little plaque? I probably do. I've never tested it, but when I went plant-based, my total cholesterol dropped from 265 to 150 and my LDL dropped from 165 to 54 in, in three or four months. So, um, you know, the, I, I really do think the optimum cholesterol numbers are probably more, are, are lower than what you see, you know, with American Heart Association. So probably that one, 150 and then in the 50, 60 range for LDL, that's, that's hard to get to. Um, but, um, and, and, um, but again, you look at Orange's data, there is evidence, even people that have, that have had, um, that have some plaque that you can reverse that. Now, you know, now, cholesterol is not the only risk factor for 
for for for uh, heart disease. So there's a lot of other risk factors. And so again, you know, smoking and lack of physical activity and and you know chronic inflammatory diseases. And so there's a, some other diabetes. So there's a lot of other things. That it's it's a it's a pretty complex um, uh, disease. But you know, by by just just um, again, when you can when you go on a very high fiber, very low fat, whole food, plant based diet, and you exercise, I mean, that's good. That's your best shot of minimizing your risk for, for heart disease. Is it, does it take it to zero? I don't think anyone, none of, I don't think there's any lifestyle that can guarantee a zero risk, but certainly you can get it down, you know, below 5%, you know? Sure. So. And I, I will say that um, well, there's a lot of people who come into the shop. We just call this place the shop because calling it the center for plant-based living every single time is maddening. It's way too long of a name for a, a business. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but people come into the shop and they're like, oh gosh, I've been on this plant-based diet. My numbers are, incre are getting better and better. Um, but my, but oh my gosh, my HDL is, oh, is yeah. falling and it's really, you and know, my like doctor's it's, worried about my it, doctor's yeah. worried about my HDL getting so low. And, you know, we now, well, Jim always talks to people about this and the HDL is like little dump trucks, right? Uh, little garbage trucks. So eating up the LDL, which we definitely want to want to lower. But if you don't have that much LDL anymore, if that's right. falling, then you also don't need your the liver, garbage your, trucks. Your liver will stop making it. So that, that, yeah. that actually happened to me as well. So HDL is not really dietary. It's, it's more exercise. So in med school, I was a marathon runner and um, I had, I had, you know, not perfect cholesterol back in med school when I was younger, younger. So like maybe 220, my LDL is 120, but my HDL was like 77, almost 80. Anything above 60 statistically lowers your risk for heart disease. And now we fast forward, you know, I, I'm in, I'm 64. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm probably more active now. I did an Ironman triathlon to celebrate my 60th birthday, you know, which is 2.4 miles from 112 mile bike around a marathon. So I'm exercising probably more now than I did in med school. But my cholesterol is 150, but my HDL is only 38. And uh, you talked to Dr. Esselstyn, he had the same phenomenon. And, and there's been some studies, uh, you look at, at uh, population data from the Tamahumera Indians, they, they were featured in the book Born to Run. So they, they're in the Sierra Madre Mountains in Northern Mexico. They eat a plant-based diet, but for fun, they, they have a game where they kick a leather ball between villages and compete. And, and, I, and the villages are like 50, 60 miles apart, right? So these are like the ultimate ultra endurance runners. They all have low HDL. And what, what about um, coconut oil? Is that something that you try to include or not include in your diet? Absolutely not. No, right. no coconut oil. Number one, well, I mean, it's actually the highest saturated fat yeah, right, oil right. Um, that people are using. Go ahead and use it on your skin. Fine. Right. That's wonderful. But please do not eat it. Um, I don't use any oils when I'm cooking, making salad dressings, none of that kind of stuff. Right. So no, uh, coconut oil is, is, is a pretty big danger if you're right. eating it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, some of the data around, say, for example, olive oil, you know, showing a, a reduced risk for heart disease. If you really look closely, like the Leon Heart Study, you have to ask yourself the question compared to what, right? So yes, olive oil on your diet will lower your risk for heart disease compared to butter, right? There have not been any really good studies looking at olive oil versus a whole food plant-based diet. And, and I think a way to kind of think about this is, is when I talk to patients is to think about how, and in a minute, Karen, by the way, she's going to explain how to do an oil free saute. It's, it's really pretty straightforward. But if you think about, we should think about our calories and our nutrition like we think about our money, right? So if you if you have a hundred, and, and so when we invest our money, we're looking for a positive return on investment, a positive ROI, right? 
Well, that's how we should think about those calories because every calorie you put in your mouth is either an investment in your, in your health future or it's not. So if you have 100 calories to invest in your health right this minute, and you can invest it in coconut oil or olive oil because you heard that was healthy, or you could invest it in boneless, skinless chicken breast or salmon because you heard that was healthy, or you can invest it in beans and broccoli. What does the nutritional ROI of each of those look like, right? 100 calories of oil, we already talked about it. You know, it's a little, it's a, it's a little bit less than a tablespoon. And what do you get back for those calories besides fat? Well, not much, right? There's no fiber. There's no protein. There's a few polyphenols in, 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 in olive oil, you know, antioxidant, but not very many. You know, there's no potassium to lower your blood pressure, on and on and all. So in fact, edible oils, in pickle oil, olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil, safflower, it doesn't matter, right? Are the worst return on your investment nutritionally, 4,000 calories a pound, roughly. And again, think about how much space that's going to take up in your stomach. You know, you're not going to feel full, certainly, you know. What about 100 calories of olive of a, of a chicken breast or salmon? Well, that's that you know it's about an ounce. Again, think about how much that takes up in your stomach, and what do you get back from that besides besides protein and fat? Well, not not much because those animals have already used all the good stuff. They've used the fiber. They've used most of the vitamins and nutrients to run their own machinery. They've concentrated what's left into protein and fat, which we then consume. And again, historically, there was probably a survival advantage to having access to that. But because we are no longer stubbed to far for calories, we have the luxury of skipping the middleman. What about 100 calories of beans or broccoli? Well, that's like 12 ounces of broccoli. You know, I mean, it, it, you're going to be full. And what else do you get? You're getting protein. You're getting you're getting fiber. You're getting a whole list of cancer fighting phytonutrients and antioxidants. And so, so again, if you frame diet through the lens of of a nutritional ROI. I think you can make a pretty strong argument that you don't eat oil. So right. share share with uh, how you how you navigate oil free cooking. Yeah, and I will say, you know, when we talk to people, we just did a cooking demo here in St. Louis this, this morning, morning yeah. for for a physicians group. Why are you adding oil to a pan anyway, right? You're doing that so that the, the vegetables or whatever you're putting in there first slide around. But really, the real reason you're doing that is so that you can get on your phone and check your Instagram. You can go, you know, let the dog out, yell at the kids, fold the laundry, right? Because we have to do about five things at once to feel like we're getting something done. So it, but getting back to it, we're adding oil to a pan because, hold please, because we don't want the, do not want, things to burn. We want them to slide around. Okay. So I want to know how many people, and this is not certainly how I used to, I mean, I would just go, 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 all the oil on the pan, right? And so we just said a right. tablespoon of olive oil or any oil is about 124, 126 calories, 14 grams of fat and zero fiber, right? right? So let's just, so knowing that if you're going to add oil to this pan, maybe you're going to add, I don't know, three, four tablespoons of oil, do the math. You're at four or 500 calories right. before you have even added any ingredients to your pan, right? So you're, you're, I mean, you're already in the, in the hole by several hundred um, calories and lots and lots of fat, more than you need for the right. day. So what I'd like to do is um, heat up a pan very, 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 very hot. Now, what's happening here is on your on your pan or your saucepan or whatever you're using, um, the molecules on the surface of this pan start to vibrate very, very fast as the heat goes up. And what we want to do is have all those molecules on the surface of the pan come to the highest heat where they are all vibrating at the same time, creating really a, a nonstick surface. Now, right. yes, this is a nonstick pan. 
they're out there, you can use them or not. It doesn't matter. This works on any kind of cookware. It even works on cast iron. Right. So you want to get your hand to a, the highest heat so that all of, the all of those molecules are vibrating at the very same time. Now, how do you test that? You want to make sure that you have a little bit of water or vegetable broth off to the side. And when this is still on that heating, heating element over the flame or whatever, if a little bit of water, just a drizzle bit of water starts to roll around, like, roll around on the, uh, the surface of your pan, like a ball of mercury, mercury yeah. then you know that you have essentially a nonstick cooking surface. surface. Right. So then you can throw your vegetables on, turn the heat down to a cooking temperature, medium, medium high, and then always stay on top of those vegetables. They will release water because they're plants. All plants have water in them. Stay on top of them, stay on top of them. And then eventually you'll add enough ingredients in. You can cover it, walk away, get back to your Instagram feed. Right, right. So here's the thing. Another, yes, the reason we're adding the oil is so that the vegetables slide around and they don't burn. But also you're creating a buffer between that pan and the food you're creating also a buffer between your taste buds and the food. So you think that you can taste your food, try not using any oil and you will just relish in the fact that you really are a good cook. Right. So there's, I, I tell it to my students all the time. We go over, we go over this, it's called dry saute, dry saute all the time. And people email me, they call me, they text me, they're like, oh my gosh, I really didn't know what I was missing. Yeah, sure. You have that buffer right, 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 right. of oil, that slickness, yeah, yeah. and you don't really taste the food until you stop using it. And, we, and you'll be demoing, uh, we're going to do a live cooking demo on Tuesday, I think, uh, and we'll be dim you'll be demoing a, a mm -hmm. oil free saute. And also, you, if you want to, you have a video on your website, yeah, right? right? Right. We have a membership, and you, all that stuff is in there. Yep, but yep. yeah, so we will be doing the dry saute on Tuesday. Yep. Hey, now what about coconut products? Coconut yogurt, um, coconut milk. Are these in the same category as coconut oil, or are they different? So, so again, you know, um, the the um, coconut milk. Um, I, I do use some coconut milk um, in in a, in a bisque and such, um, but but it's not really refined. Coconut milk, you just take a open up a coconut and you you know you get the water out and then you can press you press the uh, and then and then the coconut milk. You take the meat of the coconut and you just press it. It's, yeah, so um, it, it's minimally processed uh, really. Uh, coconut milk itself is fine, I think. Um, um, it, it, it does have a little bit more, a little bit higher fat, but but I, I you know, I don't. I use a little bit. I use yeah. a little bit, yeah. Okay, for those of us who want to avoid hip fractures, um, osteoporosis, bone fractures, do you have any guidance on what many of us who are over fifty, many of us over sixty, can do? We want to absolutely do anything we can to avoid bone fractures and have good bones. Yeah. So, so the risk factors for osteoporosis. So the, the cause of that's so the the cause the cause of weak bones and increased risk for fractures is, is a condition called osteoporosis, where we actually get thinning of the bones. And so the you know you fall and you instead of bruising your hip or bruising your you know spraining your wrist, you know they break or you can sometimes have spontaneous fractures in the in the spine, which can be quite painful. So the risk factors are uh, not enough calcium in the diet. Um, not enough vitamin D. Now, vitamin D, uh, vitamin D is really not a vitamin. It, we call it a vitamin. It acts more like a hormone, and we need vitamin D to help us absorb the calcium from our diet. Um, vitamin D doesn't come from food. Um, there's very, very few sources of, of, of natural vitamin D. Um, some mushrooms get irradiated, which raises vitamin D, and then milk, a lot of milk products have vitamin D added. 
milk actually comes, I mean, uh, vitamin D comes from the sun. We don't get out in the sun as much as we used to. Um, and especially even here in D in St. Louis or even in DC in the wintertime, if you're out in the sun, the, sun, the, the, the energy from the sun is not enough to, to create the vitamin D in, in our skin. So it's not uncommon to see vitamin D deficiency. Um, so you do need to be sure you've got plenty of vitamin D on board, um, either through sunshine or, or, or supplement. Uh, we also know regular weight-bearing physical activity uh, is very important. Um, and also, um, you know, don't smoke, excess alcohol intake, those are other risk factors. <clears throat> now, it's interesting about calcium. Um, you know, a lot of doctors just recommend, you know, you need to take these calcium pills, right? Because if, if someone in, in that age, the higher high risk age group, we probably need a thousand, maybe 1200 milligrams of calcium a day. There is some evidence, particularly in women, that um, taking calcium pills as a supplement may actually increase your risk for coronary artery calcification. Um, it, it's, not, it's not great data, but there is some data there. And the thing is, again, it, it, when you're taking the calcium from a pill, as opposed to some food, and Karen's going to talk about some, you know, great sources of calcium here in just a second. When we get our calcium from a pill, you know, it's, it, it, think about the package that calcium is coming in. When it comes in a pill, what, what else are we getting? Well, nothing, right? What about when we get our calcium from? Dark leafy greens. Right. <laughs> what else are we getting besides the calcium when we're getting fiber, cancer, fighting phytonutrients? So it is easy. It is easy to get with some diligence on your part and, and learning about some of these high calcium foods, it's easy to get plenty of calcium in your diet. Yeah, so yeah absolutely. Green leafy vegetables. And really remember what calcium is. It's a, it's a mineral found in the ground, right? Right. That's exactly right. So that's why it's going to be in the right, plant. Right. And that's right. So, you know, milk, people have talked about, you know, get milk. Well, you know, where did the calcium in the milk come from? Well, it came from the grass, you know, the cow ate. And so collard greens, for example, a cup of collard greens has more, more calcium than a cup of milk. Probably one of the best sources of, of calcium is actually tofu. Um, oh yeah. So tofu is just curdled soy milk. So you, you curdle soy milk and you scrape the curds off, and you press it in a block, and that's tofu. I mean, so so you know, sometimes you go to a Chinese restaurant, you'll see bean curds on the on the on the menu. That, that's just tofu. The curdling agent historically was calcium silicate, which is gypsum, but most most modern tofu is still made using a calcium-based uh, um, uh, mineral, a calcium-based uh, curdling agent. And some of that calcium stays in um, stays in uh, in solution. So um, uh, tofu is another great source of calcium. Sesame seeds have a lot of calcium, mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's, it, it's not hard to do with just being diligent. But the other thing, I, I don't recommend vitamin D supplements routinely. I, there is some, again, some controversy about this, um, um, but I usually check it once a year. And if it's normal a couple of times, I don't check it anymore, but I check it on my patients. And, and I mean, what I do personally, I can tell you what I do. I, I take calcium, I take vitamin D seasonally. Because in the summer and you know spring, summer, fall, I'm out running and biking, hiking. So, but starting on October 1st through on May 1st, I'll take 2,000 IU of D3. And that, that's not going to get you in trouble. So, is is walking always good for our bones, or could it ever be increase the risk? Of no, no, walking is the best thing. That's the simplest thing you can do. So, it's interesting about physical activity, right? As human beings, we evolved to be physically active. Because, but it wasn't physical activity for, through most of human history wasn't something we decided to do. It's something we had to do, right? If we didn't hunt and gather fruit, if we didn't run away from fight leopards, we didn't last very long. And in the modern world, because we no longer have to perform physical activity to survive, you know, we, we've got Uber Eats and Instacart and restaurants and grocery stores, and now we're running and fighting emotionally instead of physically. For many people, physical activity has devolved into what we now consider exercise, right? And we've come to view it as a discrete event. 
I have to put on special clothes, go to a special place, do a special thing. Uh, it starts and it stops. And we have a tendency, many of us, to do that or not do anything, not recognizing that it, it's really about physical activity, leading a physically active lifestyle, which is how you're going to improve your, you know, guarantee you have strong bones. It's going to, you know, lower your risk for heart disease, diabetes. And it's even been shown that five to 10 minute blocks of activity that are, that are accumulated through the day yeah. are just as effective as say 30 minutes continuous. So walking is great. You know, go for a hike in the woods. There is some evidence that, that, that walking in nature has a greater benefit than, than, than walking on concrete. And there's, there's been some studies where they took the same group of people and looked at things like blood pressure and stress and, and, and cholesterol and things like that and compared the same amount of exercise on concrete versus out in the woods. And, and when you exercise in the woods, um, um, there's a greater benefit uh, across the board. There's a lot of theories why this is it's a Japanese concept called forest bathing. And um, um, one of the theories, which is really fascinating to me, is that the plants are actually creating pheromones, hormones and, and, and chemicals they're putting out into the air called phytocides, which we breathe in. And that that, that that it's these phytocides that we're exposed to out in the, in, the, in, the, so in, cool. in, in nature. So so walking, you know, again, the, the, the reason walking is important as we age, you know, we start to lose muscle mass. Uh, we, it's called it's a concept of sarcopenia. We, we lose muscle mass. Um, we, 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 our balance may not be so good. And so, so again, by, by doing some weight bearing exercise, doing some light weight lifting, maintaining that muscle mass, maintaining your balance, that it not in addition to building strong bones, that's going to decrease your risk for falling, right? So there's two sides to this too, and and so regular physical activity is probably one of the most important things you can you can do. Um, is there uh, are there any supplements that nutritional supplements that you recommend everyone takes? Or should we? Well, most of us should take. I think probably just B12, B12 yeah. and I know that you know a lot of people used to think um, that a B12 supplement was just necessary for people who didn't eat animal products, but I see it across the board and especially yeah, over 52, 50 yeah, yeah. and over, I, you know, add it to your, to your panel. Yeah. Your annual panel. So, yeah. So it's interesting. There's, you know, there's some misconceptions about B12. Um, you know, B12 doesn't actually come from meat. It comes from bacteria that live in and on the meat. And these bacteria ultimately come from the soil. And what's interesting, you know, the way most meat is raised today. So when you take a, 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 a an animal a cow that's finished in a confined feeding lot they're not getting the bacteria from the dirt either almost all the commercial meat today is supplemented with has to be supplemented with b12 because they're not getting it from a natural source historically we didn't have to worry about it right even if we didn't eat meat because we got our food out of the dirt we, we played in the dirt we drank water that had bacteria in it um you know all, all is good well you fast forward to the modern world We've, we put so many pesticides and herbicides on our food, we have to scrub the dirt off, we polluted the water, so we have to we have to chlorinate to kill the bacteria. So we've lost that natural source of B12, which is these bacteria from the dirt. So I usually recommend, um, I take, there's again, a little bit of controversy about the right dose. I recommend 500 micrograms a day. It doesn't matter. I, I've never seen anybody be too high or too low on 500 micrograms a day. There's also two forms of B12. There's methylcobalamin and, and cyanocobalamin. Some people are worried about the cyanocobalamin creates a little bit of cyanide. But again, um, I think Dr. Greger recommends the cyanocobalamin because it's it's more shelf stable. You know, I get mine auto delivered by Amazon every 30 days. So, you know, it's, it's not sitting around on the shelf. And so I, I don't even know which one I take. Um, the other, you know, we talked a little bit about vitamin D already. We talked a little bit about the omega-3s. Um, there are some patients who um, have chronic inflammatory disease. I will recommend an algae-based omega-3. I also recommend it for some athletes uh, because it's anti-inflammatory. 
There is one more nutrient of concern that we I don't think we talk enough about, and it doesn't have to do with being plant-based necessarily. It has to do with salt, which we talked about earlier, and that's iodine. So we need iodine for healthy thyroid function, and, and we need it to convert the, 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 the thyroid hormone in our tissue to, the, to its kind of active um, um, form. And once again, we didn't used to have to worry about it because there's plenty of iodine in, our, in the dirt, right? And it got into our food. And so, but we've been farming the same dirt for a really, really long time. And so the soil has become depleted of iodine. And the government started to recognize this in the, in the, in the you know, 1920s, actually, and started to subsidize the salt companies to iodine salt. And so Morton's table salt, for example, has iodine in it. Now you can use table salt to get your iodine, but the problem is that the, the it's 150 micrograms is the dose. You need about, um, you need about, um, that's that's the equivalent of about three-fourths of a teaspoon of salt, which is also that 1,500 milligrams right. we talked about today. And as Karen pointed out earlier, if you're using salt, uh, finishing salts when you're cooking in a culinary standpoint, table salt is so fine-grained, it just doesn't work very well. So the, the, and, and most of the, 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 the heavy, the, the bigger grain salt, you know, sea salt, kosher salt uh, and such um, uh, is not iodinized. So just be sure, I, I, what I do is I take a kelp supplement. You can get it from seaweed. You can get it from nori um, seaweed. I take a kelp supplement personally that I, it just has, and you're just looking for 150 micrograms of, of, of iodine. That's, that's pretty much it though. Huh? I just eat a lot of veggie sushi. Yeah, right. That's the other way to do it. Hey, if anyone in the audience would like to ask a question, please raise your hand and I'll call on you. Um, continuing on, so assume someone is eating a whole food plant-based diet, they've got their quinoa, they got their chickpeas, they got vegetables, you're telling them not, not to add oil, you're saying don't necessarily add sugar or salt, how are you going to make this taste good for someone that needs some flavor? What do, you, what do you do? What do you go do from here? You open up that spice drawer, of course, um, all of the spices, I mean, you know, there's okay. I will say, and my my students gets really make fun of me um, because I use this all the time. Trader Joe's has um, a blend called Twenty One Seasoning Salute or yeah, Twenty One yeah. Salute Seasoning something. I don't know. It's a dollar ninety nine. They always have it in stock, um, and it's it's sodium free actually, um, and it has twenty one you know different herbs in it, um, and it is fantastic. I will put it in my pasta. I'll put it in my burger mixes, my black bean burger mixes. I'll, I'll put it in my salad dressings. It is fantastic, but it really is. I mean, the spice of life, there it is. It's, it's, you just open up your spice drawer. Um, I also use a fair number of condiments, um, but you really want to watch to your point, the sugar and the salt also. Right. A nutritional yeast is something that um, we plant-based people love so much. It's a deactivated yeast. Um, it's usually in flakes, but it's also ground. And I tell people it's deactivated yeast. Do not put it in your, your yeah, baked bake goods. It, right? it, you'll, you'll be very disappointed. Um, but it has a nice cheesy nutty flavor. So if you are making like a cashew based or a white bean based cheese, queso, something, um, it really just is fantastic. Or if you just want to add it to a salad dressing, just to give it a little bit of cheesiness. Right, so right. there's so much out there to make food, real food, by the way, what I like to yeah, call it, right. very, very tasty. But these real foods taste really great on their own as well. I right, mean, sometimes right. they don't need any help. Right. And it's interesting. I, you know, I have to say my, you know, when I went plant-based, my, I discovered a lot of spices I didn't even know existed, right? Yeah. Or I used in moderation. And, and you know, the thing about spices, there is a tremendous 
amount of health benefit for all, for most of the spices in the spice drawer. Well, you for know, turmeric. Yeah, turmeric, turmeric, for example. Turmeric, uh, the active ingredient in turmeric is curcumin. Curcumin is highly, highly anti-inflammatory. There's actually been studies done comparing turmeric to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So those are drugs like Motrin, ibuprofen, you know, which all have a lot of side effects that can raise your blood pressure, irritate your stomach. For people with osteoarthritis, turmeric was just as effective as an anti-inflammatory as these, these, these non-steroidals. Uh, turmeric has also been shown to help prevent cancer. It's got a very pretty profound anti-cancer properties. And what's interesting about turmeric is what's the secret about turmeric, right? To, the, the, you got if you mix it with black, if, oh, if right, you right. combine it with black pepper. So right, your body is help your body out when you can, and it, it becomes highly absorbable right. if you add a little bit of black, black pepper, pepper, about forty percent more. Yeah. But things like cinnamon, you know, has been shown to help lower blood sugar, and I mean the list goes on. Uh, garlic, for example, garlic, that whole class of the Allison, Allison vegetables, garlic, leeks, ramps, uh, green onions, you know, onion. Highly, highly, highly anti-inflammatory, and so you know the beauty of it is when we use this, when we when we when we get spice up our lives, if you will, um, uh, we're also spicing up our health because they have really profound yeah. health benefits. Okay, Mona, would you like to ask a question? And where are you from? Yes, I'm from Savannah, Georgia, and you touched on the vitamin B12 supplementation. My question is for Dr. Loomis, and this is just out of my curiosity. If I'm doing a, a spirulina powder in a green smoothie every day, can I omit the uh, B12 supplement as this already has B12 in it? Yeah, I don't, th if, if I'm not mistaken, there's not a ton of B12 in spirulina. Uh, same, so nutritional yeast also has B12, by the way. But the problem is, um, um, the, the problem with dietary B12 and spirulina and, and nutritional yeast, it, it's, it's, it's not very much of it is, is absorbed. Right. So only about 5%. And you really don't know how much is in there. Right. Right. And so, yeah, and spirulina, you know, it's, it's not really regulated. We don't really, there's no one testing spirulina batch to batch to see how much B12. So even if you're, if you're using nutritional yeast or you're using spirulina, I, I do think you probably do need a, a, um, uh, a, a little bit of extra um, B12. Okay. Thank you. Um, should, if someone's listening to this, and they say, why should I listen to anything these people are saying? I'm just going to go get Ozempic. It's this new diabetes <laughs> drug, and I could lose weight that way. It's much, much easier. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot of things wrong with that. Um, besides being $1,200. Yeah, besides being $1,200 a month, and insurance probably isn't going to cover it. Uh, so first of all, um, you know, Ozempic works a couple different ways. It, it, suppre it suppresses your appetite. That's the main thing it does. It's, it was developed as a diabetes drug and it, and, it, and it helps our pancreas, you know, process insulin more efficiently, but it, it also suppresses appetite and, and it makes you nauseated. So that's one reason you may not eat as much, but that there's evidence that, that, so first of all, once you stop taking the Ozempic, um, you'll, you, the weight will come back, right? Because your appetites come back. So, so it's something that Right now, if you look at their literature, they say you need to be on it the rest of your life. Now, what kind of a marketing gig is that, right? I mean, to say, you know, here's this drug is going to cost $1,200 a month. And God, by the way, you're going to have to take it for the rest of your, your life. And once again, um, uh, we don't know. There's no long-term studies on Ozempic, right? Uh, we, we don't know what happens when you suppress these hormones for 20 years, what's going to happen, you know, what the long-term effect of that is. And I think it's a good example, really, of how we practice, you know, health reductionism. You know, again, I mentioned that earlier. 
we treat weight different than we treat blood pressure different than cholesterol. So yeah, you go on Ozempic and you lose some weight. What's that done for your risk for prostate cancer or colon cancer or breast cancer? Well, it might've made it go down a little bit because obesity can be a risk factor, but it fundamentally hasn't changed the risk. And again, that's why healthy lifestyle, you know, when we adapt a healthy lifestyle, when we flip, when we flip this model upside down and, and take a, instead of taking a disease-based approach, we're going to treat your obesity, we're going to treat your type 2 diabetes, we're going to treat your cholesterol. And we, 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 do a, we think about root cause, right? Then that's how we're going to leave long-term change. And I, and I think, and I was certainly guilty of this for many years. You know, many people, when they want to improve their health, um, we oftentimes will set for ourselves outcomes related goals, right? I want to lose 20 pounds. So I'm going to go on Ozempic. I'm going to, I'm going to really eat healthier. I'm going to exercise more. And we work really hard and we reach our goal. And then what do we do, right? We take our foot off the gas. We, we celebrate sometimes. And I can tell you that between med school and age 50, when I went plant-based, I had not at once, but cumulatively, I had probably gained and lost hundred pounds, right? 20 up, 15 down, 25 up, you know, 30 down, 20 up, 15 up, so yo-yo up and down, up and down. And so the key to really of long-term success is, 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 is opposed to, and again, this is what Karen is such great, does a great job with her coaching background and with her cooking. So instead of thinking about the outcome, focus on the process, right? And what I mean by that is instead of worrying about what the scale weighs in the morning, think about what am I going to make for dinner today? Um, how, you know, what time am I going to go to sleep tonight? How am I going to deal with the next stressful situation? How much am I going to move today? And so, you know, that's sometimes easier said than done. And, and again, I think that that is, um, that's one thing that, that Karen does such a great job here at the Center for Plant-Based Living is giving people the tools to, to, to the, those process related tools around, around what to eat, you know, how to navigate social situations, how to navigate time constraints or budgetary constraints, because um, um, those are the kind of things that need to be addressed in the process to, to really achieve long-term success beyond taking pills. We have just two minutes left. Could you tell us how we could follow up with the two of you, what people want to get in touch with you, do your program? How do they, how do they stay connected to you? So um, the Center for Plant-Based Living, we have a virtual component to it as well, um, a membership, and we have people from all over the world who are members. It's a totally virtual membership, and we won't get too much into that, but one of the perks of the membership is your own, well, a group class, cooking class uh, via Zoom, and I encourage people to cook with me from the comfort of their own kitchen because it is such a fantastic learning tool. Um, Jim is also uh, a part of it is we do a monthly call and Jim is there quarterly. So you right. get access to a plant-based doc four times a year. Now, I will say one thing that we're doing now, we just kick up, kicked off a brand new uh, YouTube series called the Doc and Chef Show. It's on YouTube. There's a link to it right there. Yep. On the website, you can go to thedocandchef.com. Uh, there we go. That's our latest episode. Yeah. So um, if you watch the episode, you'll see why I'm doing that. Um, but so what we're doing, we have over, we have about a hundred topics now, and we have shot 16 episodes so far. There are two on YouTube. Uh, the first one was protein. The second one was soy. And they're about 20 minute episodes. And Jim and I have come together where he lays down the science. And then I show you what the science looks like on a plate. So it is the what and the how, right. and it's called the doc and chef. And then right. we've also 
Um, you can see there, we are also taking this show on the road. We have uh, a lot, actually more than they have here, more than we have here, but we have a lot of live shows coming up around the country. Right. And that's what we did one this morning, yeah. a live show at a, at a, for a, a physician group uh, this morning. It's really exciting. You know, it's interesting, the way, the way Doc and Chef was born is that, you know, I would hear, be here in the shop, helping Karen teach a class, you know, in my day-to-day -day practice. We were all getting we were both getting the exact same questions over and over and over, right? Well, where am I going to get my protein on a plant-based diet? Doesn't, I, I'm, I need to stay away from soy because it causes breast cancer. Uh, you know, gluten, nightshades, uh, lethicins, the anti-nutrients we talked about earlier, on and on and on. And then a light bulb went off. I said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we create a YouTube channel where we're going to marry the nutrition science to that plate of food? And so each episode has a scientific evidence-based blog post with the scientific references. Um, and so everything I say on, in, in each episode is, is um, evidence-based. And then there's also in, in the blog post a link to the recipe. And uh, they, they, they drop every two weeks. and um, Every other Sunday. And every other Sunday. Okay. And thank you very much. Can we unmute everyone so we could all thank them together? We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We all appreciate it. Thank you.